Pearson, the world's education company, and their renowned authors are bringing engaging and informative sessions to educators on the topics of politics, government, and the 2020 presidential election in a new webinar series. Save your seat by registering at go.pearson.com slash election series. Welcome to The Key with IHE, a podcast focused on the pandemic's impact on vulnerable students. I'm Paul Fain, the host and a contributing editor with Inside Higher Ed. So the scale of the challenge facing higher ed started to come into clearer focus last week. It's not a pretty picture. The National Student Clearinghouse Research Center found fall enrollments were down 23% among first-time community college students this fall, and 14% for first-year students at four-year public institutions. Many of these students will not enroll in higher education, and the cost of attending college is a major barrier for them. So how do we help college students finance career education pathways in ways that pay off for them? Chris Keaveny, the founder and CEO of Meritize, thinks he has some answers. Meritize is a private lender focused on reducing risk and friction for students, employers, and colleges. We talked with Chris about the Meritize model and what it means for skills-based learning more broadly. All of the schools we work with in some way, shape, or form share in the risk associated with the outcomes of students. So it's something we it is very fundamental to us is that a sustainable solution around providing financing for education um, requires that everyone who's involved in the transaction have their interests and risks aligned. I also spoke with Carlos Salerno, Vice President for Research at Campus Logic, a student financial success technology company. Salerno is a higher education economist who brings a national perspective to student loans and models like that of Meritize and income share agreements. I think what we're going to see is that a lot of these financing mechanisms are really beneficial to both parties, right? Backers will get rewarded for good investments and borrowers slash fundraisers will get dollars they need, but they'll also get a safety net that they need to make sure that payments or shares are never unaffordable and that they're not on the hook for debt forever. And so everybody wins. Let's get to the conversation. I'm speaking with Chris Keaveny. Chris, how are you? Good. Good morning. How are you, Paul? Doing well. So we spoke a couple times now over the years, and I never got around to writing about Meritize, which I regret. But uh, I remember thinking it was a really fascinating model, and even more so now given the pandemic and recession. Can you give listeners a sense of how you all work? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, at Meritize, the way we talk about it is that we are – we are here to promote awareness, access, and advancement within the skills-based space. And um, that can mean a lot of things, but really we, we started about four years ago and focused first on creating access for people to get skills-based educations. Uh, we work with all sorts of programs outside of, of the traditional higher ed space. And we, we tackled that because we found that there were a lot of people who just could not go and get the skills that they wanted to get because of barriers to paying for it. And so uh, what we do is we look at someone's merit in evaluating them for this financing. So we look at uh, uh, educational history, military history, and in some cases we're learning into this, we'll use someone's work history to evaluate them uh, for financing. We've built the analytics around this over the course of 12 years. Uh, it's been a long project for us, and we found uh, strong correlations between not someone's GPA or what they may have majored in or what classes they've taken, 
but dimensions of information that we can glean from from their past around persistence, trend, and uh, consistency in what they've done. The idea is is that we can then assess their determination and their grit uh, and apply that to the likelihood they're going to be successful in doing what they getting the skills they want. So, you know, I get it's a de-risking play for both the student and the education provider. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what programs and what uh, partners you work with and then how the financing actually works? Yeah, absolutely. So we do this a little bit differently than what's done in in most of the education space in that we start by having, we have a team of analysts who spend all day, every day looking for uh, market dislocations between the supply and demand for certain skills, right? Even geographically, uh, we're looking for areas where, you know, the demand for certain skills outpaces the supply. Uh, once we find situations like that that meet our criteria, we then go and find training programs that will give people those skills. And we have a pretty pretty robust diligence process for those training programs. but. At the end of the day, we'll have a contractual relationship with those training programs and uh, provide financing for their students uh, with the aim of sending them right into to the workforce to satisfy that, that skills gap. Um, one thing I would say is that you know, we now have contractual relationships with over 300 schools and training programs across the country. We put them in basically five main verticals. You know, one is industrials, so that could be welding to CNC machinists to commercial divers um, and all sorts of things in between. Allied Health, which is you know everything from certified nursing assistants up to some pretty high-end nursing uh, programs. Medical technology, which would include things like diagnostic medical sonography and cardiomyopathy uh, technicians, and then we have IT, uh, which can be some of the you know the the popular boot camps and, and some other, you know, less uh, obvious technology programs, cybersecurity, et cetera, and aviation. Um, so we do work with the people in the aviation industry who are training commercial pilots and aviation mechanics. All of the schools we work with in some way, shape or form share in the risk associated with the outcomes of students. So it's something we, is very fundamental to us is that, a sustainable solution around providing financing for education um, requires that everyone who's involved in the transaction have their interests and risks aligned. So that means the student, the school, the financer, and, and ultimately the employer as well. I know there's more labor market analytics coming online all the time, you know, but as somebody who's doing it, I'm, I'm guessing it's a lot harder to get right than a layperson might think, but I'm wondering just generally, what, what sort of gulf are you seeing out there between uh, education programs and the actual needs? I mean, how, how big is that gap? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, I, wish, I wish I had, I wish I had a, a precise number. I just, uh, the only thing I can tell you is it's big. Uh, it is materially big. And, you know, the further we've gotten into this, the more fascinating I find it because it is truly fairly nuanced. And it's also very, very interesting. You know, so we find significant gaps in the, the supply and demand for certain skill sets geographically. And it, um, it has driven our strategies quite a bit. 
right? And uh, we've learned over time that to think about something like on a national level is you, you miss you miss a lot of the key trends and, and the, the good that you can do. So how has the current crisis affected what you do? Uh, obviously, tremendous impact on uh, lower income families, particularly black and Latinos. Uh, job dislocation is, is substantial. Uh, impact on education providers is, is really just beginning. I mean, what, what I would imagine this opens some doors for you all, though, in terms of opportunity. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, you know, it's still, you know, obviously this year was a shock to the system. And I would tell you that, you know, from where we sit, not all of the dust has settled yet. But I do think that, you know, like I mentioned, we started this four years ago in a very benign economic environment, right? And we've we've kind of talked the whole time internally and, and to people around it. Look, we were basically operating at full employment, right? So uh, there there wasn't a massive need for people to, to find employment. And uh, we always said that, when the inevitable uh, turn in the economic cycle occurs, there's going to be, you know, a change in that, that scenario. And there are going to be lots of people who need the new skills. They need to be able to transition from what they were doing before to something new. No one, in, no one could have possibly imagined what happened this year. Uh, and I think what happens, uh, what, what the result of this is that it's going to take what would have been, you know, a much more gradual uh, decline in the the um, you know ebbing of the economic cycle, and it created a very a crisis almost. Uh, you know, 30, 40 million people were thrown out of work. I think some of them still believe that they're going to go back to what they were doing before, and it hasn't happened yet. Um, and so I think there is there we've already seen this, but I think it's going to continue over the next you know I have no idea how long, but there's going to be a massive need for people to transition to new. Um, new sectors, new jobs, which is going to require you know, new skills, uh, more skills, et cetera. And so, like I said, we've started to see an, an uptick in demand, but I don't think it's going to go away. I think it's going to actually increase over the next you know, six to 12 months. That does offer a big opportunity to us. Uh, it, offers, it also creates a, a fairly big responsibility for us because we want to be part of the solution. Uh, but it also complicates things too, right? The capital markets are still a little bit screwed up in terms of uh, the flow of money, uh, where that money is flowing. Uh, the political environment obviously offers some challenges. We'll see. I think 2021 will also be a pretty exciting year. Indeed. I'm afraid people, when they say 2020 can't end soon enough, are forgetting <laughs> it. We don't know what 2021 is going to be like. So, you know, one of the things we've seen anecdotally and growing data uh, as well, that dislocated workers, potential adult students are interested in higher education or post-secondary training, but they're anxious and uncertain about whether or not it's to take out the risk it is a barrier that has grown given the anxiety and uncertainty of the environment. Um, you de-risk, obviously. Do you think that the potential there to help students pull the trigger on a program that works if the risk seems manageable, increases the need, the interest in financing options that are creative in higher education, you know, income share agreements, et cetera? Yeah, that's a, I think that's a very critical question. And it's also, you know, we could probably talk about this for hours. So I'll try to give you a couple, couple quick thoughts. You know, one is that I think 
you know, student loan has become a bad word, right? And, or, or two words, it's, it's a bad two words. You know, certainly I would agree that not, you know, the ideal scenario is someone not having to borrow money to get an education. Uh, I don't think there is enough money in the government coffers to make that happen. Right? I just, I don't see a solution where, where um, that's feasible. At that point, I think that, you know, giving access to education for folks is incredibly important for the future of our country and doing it in a way that you can feel very confident that there's going to be a return on that investment. So borrowing against your education is essentially an investment. If you are, if you can be confident that there's a return on there that makes it a, a positive ROI decision, then that is about the best scenario we could hope for. Uh, and that's what we focus on myopically. Like we, we, we have actually turned away schools that we won't work with for reasons that we could not get comfortable that the return was there whether they're charging too much for tuition or um, their outcomes weren't good enough. Like it could be a couple of different things. I think that, you know, any type of financing solution that, that does that, you know, ensures that there's a return on investment is something that should be discussed and something that we should look into. I personally believe that the second dimension, which is important and we can't lose sight of is that a solution that does you know, make sure that there's a, there's a good return on investment. If it does not have the risks and incentives aligned between all the parties participating, it won't work in the long run. But, you know, to be honest with you, like ISAs, I think they check the first box, right? They, they ensure that there's a return there for the person who is getting that education. And I think that's a fantastic thing. The thing that I'm concerned about with ISAs is that the risks and interests get a little bit muddled, I believe. Right. And so the person who is successful after finishing their education is actually taking on more risk than the person who is unsuccessful. And it creates weird incentives in this in the system. Right. And so, you know, I could I could go on and on, but I, I'll leave it at that. I think that there's a way that, that this could be a good product. I think it's going to have its limitations in, in terms of the broad market. Thanks for indulging that. I know I agree with you that we could go on for a long time there. Um, you know, but could you give us a sense uh, of you know, what is a successful generally outcome for you in a program? Like, what are you looking for to kind of meet the threshold just to give folks a sense of what works? That's another great question. And it's a tough one to answer. But, but I will tell you that, you know, what we found in the time we've been doing this is that almost half of the folks that we have as customers, so we've helped finance their educations, are people who would not have gotten financing under any other model. Uh, there's been a lot, of, a lot of discussion lately, you know, the Senate Finance Committee sent out the, that request to a number of people using alternative data and the subsequent uh, requests and, and information that came out about that. From day one, we have, we have taken our responsibility seriously using alternative data and making sure that we're doing it in a compliant way. So, you know, we do test ourselves. Uh, we've had a third party look at, look at what we do, a third party law firm. And we have found that the approach of looking at someone's merit actually is beneficial to protected classes, right? It does not, it does not disadvantage them. Um, everyone knows that credit does create barriers for uh, protected classes. It's just, it is, the nature of the beast. 
Uh, so we've been able to serve a large number of, of uh, folks who otherwise wouldn't have been able to. The, the thing that we're proud of and the way that I, I think the best way I can answer this question is that if you look at the 300 schools that we work with and look at their completion rates, um, I think the latest data I looked at is that the, the weighted average completion rates for the schools we work with is about 80%, which by the way is significantly above the, the overall six-year graduation rates reported by the Department of Ed and their iPads data for the Title IV schools which is another conversation, but the students that we're able to help finance their education are completing at rates that are much higher than 80%. It's nearly 90% or slightly above 90%. And so, you know, the model that we're employing is actually helping to find people who are going to be successful at what they're doing. If they are successful at completing, the analysis we do on the program makes sure that the employment they're going to get on the back end allows them to responsibly repay that loan and it's a positive ROI decision. That I think is probably the best way I can answer your question. No, I appreciate it. Um, and you know, I feel like we, we barely scratched the surface, but that tends to be what I do on this show. Um, so I'll encourage folks to check out Meritize in the model. Definitely seems like one, as I said earlier, that can only be more interesting now, uh, given what's happening to the economy. So Chris, Appreciate you and your perspective on all this. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, look, I appreciate the opportunity to do so. Uh, and I, I appreciate what you're doing here. I think it's incredibly important for us to be talking about this stuff. If you're looking to go even more in-depth in IHE's news coverage, check out our special reports. These deep dives feature rich data and reporting, as well as thoughtful, substantive analysis you can trust. Visit InsideHigherEd.com backslash special dash reports to view the topics we've covered and to purchase the report that best supports your area of work or study. Alrighty, we're live. I'm speaking with Carlo Salerno. How you doing, Carlo? Hey, good morning, Paul. How are you? Doing well. So we today, uh, meaning higher ed and, and those who care about it, read the news of a pretty substantial confirmation of the enrollment declines that we were, we were worried about. You know, the National Student Clearinghouse saw a 26% decline in first-year students at community colleges, or sorry, 23, I believe, and, and 16% at four years. What does this mean to you? Well, I think what it means more than anything is that we have a much bigger crisis than we ever thought possible, right? Like, you can't have a conversation about how precariously financed most institutions are and then, you know, pull anywhere from a quarter to an eighth of tuition revenue off the table and figure out how people are going to be able to respond to that, right? There's services that need to be covered. There's, you know, bills that need to be paid. One of the things that higher ed does exceptionally well is just-in-time financing, right? Like every dollar that comes in is spent, right? We don't hoard dollars in higher ed. So when a dollar does come in, that dollar's already spent. And if that dollar's already spent, then, you know, you take those dollars away and you have to start taking resources away or thinking about where those resources are going to get pulled back. That's pretty dangerous if you're an institution that has to decide, should I cut this student service? Should I cut this academic service? Should I cut this research function? That's a hard choice. And I don't envy any university leader that has to make that decision right now. Absolutely. You know, we're here to talk about financing and career education, career education pathways, and it just felt wrong to not start with what the yeah. community, community college sector and, and really all of higher ed are, are looking at now. 
So as you know, I talked with Chris Keevney of Meritize about how they uh, offer financing to students to kind of de-risk that pathway. Um, what, what do you think of that model and, other, and the potential for others like it right now? Well, I mean, again, if we go back to the current crisis, right? Like the challenge right now is, you know, let's, let's take even a step higher back, right? Like federal student loans, the whole federal student loan program was designed to solve the problem of, hey, I don't have any money to go to school. Is there some way that I can find low cost, easy to access financing because maybe I'm low income or maybe I'm unemployed. And so in practice, we should think, oh, well, COVID has created a situation where there are more low income people and more unemployed people. So the federal student loan program should be the obvious solution to this. And it's not, right? Like people are worried about taking on debt. They're looking at the college experience and saying, you know, hey, I can't go right now, right? I can't figure out how to make this work. And so if the consumer struggles with figuring out how to pay for it, any tool that that's designed to give them either comfort or give them some kind of financial relief is valuable. And so if you look at the meritized model, right, and you look at a situation where somebody can help shave basis points, make borrowing a little bit cheaper, take a different tack, give people the ability to think about, I want, you know, the traditional model, right, is, you know, I go get credit based on my prior history and this idea of like, well, let's not look at that. Let's look at your forward, you know, future potential instead as a way to assess risk. Like that gives people of all walks of life a more even shot because it doesn't matter if you're low income or maybe you struggle with, you know, less than stellar credit. If you still want to be a biochemist and you go to the right school or you go to a school with a high value reputation, you can essentially find financing that's on a similar level to somebody who probably would have had higher credit, you know, higher, you know, a better credit score and more means and resources. So it's a leveler, right? It's, it gives people who traditionally wouldn't have uh, a loan option at favorable terms, a chance to get loans at favorable terms. And so if you can do that and you make borrowing cheaper and you make loans cheaper, then you make it more affordable and that should in principle benefit everybody. That should help lift all boats essentially. So it's a great model. And it's also a model that ports really nicely to whether you're doing traditional higher ed or whether you're doing uh, short form courses, right? And whether you're whether you're doing a six month, nine month, twelve month certification, or you, you look to the boot camp market or some of these other places, right? It's just a valuable financing option. Like it's just it's a better financing option because most people who are training anyway for most of the traditional market, right, doesn't have the credit runway that you need to sort of give them a fair rate anyway. So it almost it almost makes you step back and wonder like why haven't we always done it this way right like why haven't we always just like looked at what people want to do and based you know their likelihood of success on what they're planning to do rather than on what an 18 to a 20 year old who may have just a Macy's card right as their form of credit you know be their marker for how good of that they're going to be down the road so even for me this is a broad question about a complex topic but Income share agreements, uh, you know, you were talking about short form courses, you know, I wonder, I know that those are, are getting some extra attention right now from General Assembly, from others, yeah. but of course, even in traditional higher ed, how much of a, in, in the context of what we're seeing right now with the economy, where do you see the role for ISAs? Yeah, well, I mean, again, ISAs are another one of those alternative forms of financing that I think provide a safety net because they 
give the fundraiser you know a manageable share or payment and they give them protection so that if you you know have economic hardship you don't you're not held on the hook in perpetuity for some debt but at the same time right like they have this sort of forward underwriting sense about them right again they reward future action rather than not only past behavior but typically it's it's always going to be somebody's somebody else's past behavior right since you can't look at my credit rating you're going to probably go to my parents credit rating my parents ability to repay their debt or their willingness to repay their debt is not mine like so again backward looking traditional underwriting just has always been a poor fit for higher ed to begin with right in principle it just doesn't make sense isas are another example of filling that gap and and i think the big struggle right like if you had to if you had to point to a challenge with forward looking underwriting and say well why why don't we always do it and why why hasn't this been the norm? I think the challenge, right, is that perceptions and intentions change, right? It's hard to lock in and commit. I can I can offer you, Paul, $20,000 because you tell me you want to become a biochemist, but what if you decide that biochemistry is not for you in your third year and you decide, you know what, I really want to just like write poetry and now I've given you $20,000, $30,000 thinking you're going to earn all this money in this job market in biochemistry and now I have to reconcile that with the new economic reality that you're going to be a poet and you know i have to then figure out how to adjust and so it creates there's some logistical challenges to forward-looking underwriting that just make it really hard to practice at scale right it can be done it just makes it harder to do right like it's easy to look at past behavior and say this was known it's harder to look at forward-looking behavior and say will it persist right is, is is this person going to stay in this path and even if they don't stay in that path like i could stay in the biochemistry route to use my example but i could also academically struggle i could drop out as well right like i don't have to change majors i can still drop out i could have a life event where uh, my parents get sick or my spouse gets sick or my child you know gets hurt or my car breaks down if i'm low income and suddenly i find myself derailed and all of those future activities are not predictable so i think anybody who tries to model future risk right has to take all these things in account and that just makes it harder it makes it an order of magnitude harder to do that model compared to the traditional route even though we probably think it should be done if that makes any sense it does. You know, I wonder, given the uncertainty in the system right now, particularly what sort of jobs are going to be on the other side, does that make this forward-looking looking approach to underwriting harder even still? So I think it depends. I think, again, I think it depends on where you want to look at your focus, right? Like, for, for folks who go into programs that are very narrowly targeted and lead to very specific job outcomes and very specific wages and very specific employment markets, all that stuff can be modeled and it's predictable and obviously the shorter the course you have to endure the more likelihood you're going to complete the course right uh it's it's less of a financial burden so all of that works in favor of forward-looking underwriting which is probably why you see things like the meritized model or our isas in particular show up in the boot camp space for example right like that's a great example of where all the stars align for a financing model like this but it gets harder as you move into the more traditional academic route where, hey, I'm a freshman at a traditional university and you know I know it's a four-year program, but in principle, we know it's gonna take the typical student five to five and a half years. There's all these potentials for change that I talked about before in terms of preferences and choices. 
you know, that the risk just starts to blow itself up. And even not like, even if I choose, for example, to say, okay, I'm going to get an economics degree, right? I'm going to go get a bachelor's degree in economics. Well, you know, there's probably 200 different jobs I could take as a quote economist, right? So it gets really hard to just model like what is an economist at that point? Is it somebody who works in the banking sector? Is it somebody who works at a think tank? Is it somebody, you know, who works in healthcare as an actuarial, right? Like there's a lot of different career paths and the more career paths you have, you know, the tie back to a single degree, the harder it is to, again, manage the risk of where that graduate's going to go. So it just gets, it gets hard. It's, it's, it's a more, it's, it's, it's a financing program that scales better, the tighter the linkage between the program and the job is, and it's a program or it's a financing mechanism that scales better, the shorter, the, the shorter the program duration is, if that makes any sense. It does. You know, you've, you've already noted that Meritize and the, the current universe of ISAs are pretty boutique-y to, to get to scale incentives, guardrails, anything that you'd like to see help nudge these things in a responsible way to, to being a viable option for a lot of students? Yeah, sure. Uh, a better regulatory environment, right? Like I think most people will tell you that law and legislation to help sort of frame what this market looks like is really what I think investors slash backers need to have the comfort to put dollars into the space right now. And without it, right, I think there's just this really, I think there's a real risk of while, while the market looks rosy and it looks like there's great potential to do some great things, right? Like without, without that sort of regulatory sandbox that you know you're going to play in, you run the risk of putting money into something and then you know, let's, let's say a student doesn't make their payments or, or their shares, or let's say any issue crops up, right? Without a good regulatory environment, now that issue becomes a court dispute. And now a court ends up legislating what's going to happen. And not only does it legislate, but it only legislates for a certain region, right? Depending on which level of court you're going to. And that doesn't simplify things, that complicates things, and it fragments things, and it just makes investment in this market even harder. So... I think if you want to see dollars flow into alternative forward-looking financing markets like this, what we need to do is give backers the comfort that they know what the rules are around getting into this market. And if we can give them that kind of comfort, they can understand you know, the risks and rewards a little bit better and have a legal protection of their own legal safety net, we'll see more dollars flow in there. And as more dollars flow in there, I think what we're going to see is that a lot of these financing mechanisms are really beneficial to both parties, right? Backers will get rewarded for good investments and borrowers slash fundraisers will get dollars they need, but they'll also get a safety net that they need to make sure that payments or shares are never unaffordable and that they're not on the hook for debt forever. And so everybody wins. And the longer that that happens and the larger that that market eventually grows, eventually what we'll hopefully see is a pullback from the taxpayer funded model that we have today because we don't need federal student loans. You know, we will increasingly need fewer student loan dollars as the private market is willing to take on the risk that taxpayers, you know, basically have dropped on them today. Well, I always appreciate uh, hearing your thoughts on financial aid and financing. Uh, and I, I just, I really like the way you pulled all this together. Uh, it's really complicated stuff, but I, I think I actually learned a lot here listening to you. So thanks for indulging the questions. Um, and it's also always good to talk to a 
fellow fan of, uh, of, of hitting the heavy bag in the gym, uh, you more recently <laughs> than me, even, you know, though we're across the country is good to see you as well. Yeah, no, uh, thanks for having me. This has been great. Uh, really appreciate talking about these things and, uh, you know, looking forward to a chance to chat again, Paul. Thanks again. Educators around the world rely on the trusted content and digital learning resources from Pearson to improve outcomes in face-to-face -face or hybrid learning environments. Visit Pearson for all your online teaching resources at go.pearson.com slash teaching online. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next Tuesday. We'll be talking about transfer. Lots of swirl in higher ed, so it should be a good one. I hope you'll tune in.